Hey everyone, it's Jenna, and before we get to this week's episode, wanted to let you know that we are gearing up to do the second annual Democracy Works Listener Mailbag episode. That's right, we had so much fun taking your questions last summer that we are doing it again to close out our season before we take a short summer break. So if you have questions about things we've covered on the show, things about democracy and COVID-19, or even things that we haven't covered, um, we would love to hear them. So you can submit your questions at democracyworkspodcast.com slash question. Again, democracyworkspodcast.com slash question. And uh, I will read them to Michael and Chris on the show. If you leave your name and email in the question form, you will also be entered uh, for a chance to win a Democracy Works coffee mug. Soon as we're all able to get back into the office, we will get those mugs shipped out to you. So again, that is democracyworkspodcast.com slash question. And we look forward to hearing your questions. COVID, I think, is creating very fertile ground for disinformation writ large, because one of the things we have always said, when we look at the at-risk groups for who tends to be the most susceptible to disinformation, it tends to be socially isolated people. Prior to COVID, that was a very small percentage of Americans. Now it's about 90% of us. So we're all in a space right now where reality has been kind of flipped on its head. So I think that is creating, writ large, an environment for disinformation to spread and really to take hold. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, recording in locations around State College, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are going to talk about the infodemic that has sprung up around COVID-19 and specifically um, China's role in that infodemic. Joining us for this discussion are Jessica Brandt and Brett Schaefer from the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is part of the German Marshall Fund. Listeners of this show may recognize that name. We've had Laura Rosenberger, that organization's director, on our show several times, and uh, we work very closely with them. And there's a lot of ways to look at at China's in involvement here. You can look at it from a foreign policy or a national security perspective, but I think there really are some interesting connections to what China's been doing over the past weeks and months if you look at it through the lens of democracy. Right. Interesting and and disturbing, right? There is uh, clearly a change in terms of how uh, China has engaged the West, especially with with respect to the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And um, we see them developing some of the same propaganda tools that you commonly see from Russia. And Michael, we've talked about Russia before. Right. Um, uh, in fact, my, my interest in this topic was first spurred by all the discussions we had about Russia, including with Laura uh, Rosenberger, about how they had a general strategy of trying to disrupt American democracy, disrupt the 2016 election, put their fingers on the scale in favor of Donald Trump. And my curiosity in this at the beginning was, well, is China doing something similar? Right. What is their strategy in terms of disruption? And, and obviously, with respect to you know, what we know about the 2016 
election. They were pushing Facebook groups to be contrary to each other, exacerbating conflicts. But the kind of typical and longstanding Russian playbook is to undermine people's uh, notion of what the truth is. Right. And, and that is something that we are seeing again out of China yeah. And um, and and it's 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 important for us to take a step back and say, why is it that authoritarian governments see the truth as an enemy and as so important to the to the well-being and well-functioning of a democracy? Since we are talking about an epidemic here and, you know, information especially official information in the course of a, a epidemic is of critical importance. I mean, it's people have to know what's going on. They have to know what their behavior should be. They have to know what's safe and what's not safe. And so information is of particular importance. Honest information is of particular importance when you're talking about an epidemic. More broadly, the truth is important to a democracy. The currency of a democracy is truth, is objective facts that we can argue about. And if we don't have an agreement about, A, that there is a reality out there, and B, that we are all going to say what we think the truth is accurately, we're going to convey our beliefs accurately, then argument is a waste of time. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And so, therefore, democracy doesn't work. I mean... On the one hand, because you usually think of China actually as being somewhat different from Russia. I mean, Russia very much likes to meddle in democracies around the world and disrupt them. That seems to be, in fact, a key part of their foreign policy. Uh, and China, has been for decades, right? For decades, yeah. right. For decades. But, but China, on the other hand, I always get the sense is more focused on propaganda about themselves in presenting a positive image about China. And controlling uh, access to any negative impression about China. Exactly, exactly. And that's tied into, you know, its efforts really to become a, a more dominant world power economically and, and in other kinds of ways. But increasingly, what I think I'm hearing from out of China, I, again, I, I guess I'll speak to this, is an effort to really sow the kind of disinformation uh, that we're used to from the Russians. And Americans are flooded with contradictory ideas. They don't know what's true and what's not. Well, and 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 here's the other point that really scares me, is China, their argument is, look, you're getting dif disinformation from them too. But, and so, you know, our disadvantage is the same, no matter who you're looking at. They see that this is a moment, an opportunity that they can exploit. And that's what they're doing. Well, let's hear from two people who know a lot about this. Yes, indeed. Let's go to my interview with Jessica Brandt and Brett Schaefer. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Jessica Brandt and Brett Schaefer. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. When the virus first began in China, we sort of expected the, the Chinese government to do things like decrease or uh, publicly 
downplay the number of, of COVID-19 cases that were happening in the country and try to prop up things like building hospitals in short periods of time, all these, these sorts of things. And you and others argue that there's been kind of a, a shift in, in how China is, is approaching its, its relationship to information during the, the COVID-19 pandemic and really contributing to this broader infodemic. So um, can you maybe start by talking about what that transition looks like and, and when you first started seeing things change from what had been Beijing's kind of traditional playbook? Sure. So I I think there's a number of interesting pieces on the narrative front, but maybe a good place to start is how we've seen some of the tactics shift. Brett has built this incredible dashboard that tracks China's state-backed media, both websites and broadcasts, but also on Twitter, as well as China's uh, diplomatic and government accounts on Twitter. And, you know, one thing he noticed, and maybe he wants to jump in here, is the explosion of Twitter accounts linked to China over the past year. I think it's a 300% increase. Um, since April 1st of last year, which roughly coincides with the sort of acceleration of pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Yeah, Jess, Jess's numbers are right there. I mean, prior to April 2019, Twitter seemed to be an afterthought for Chinese diplomats. There was roughly about 30 to 35 uh, accounts on Twitter, and most of their key embassies didn't even have accounts. So there wasn't a Chinese embassy Twitter account for the United States. There wasn't a Chinese embassy Twitter account for the United Kingdom. So it seemed to be just sort of a a kind of ad hoc strategy to be on Twitter. It was left up to the discretion of individual ambassadors and individual embassies. So we've really seen them doubling down on making sure that all of their ambassadors, their key diplomats, their spokespeople are on Twitter and able to message directly to Western audiences. This expanded presence on Twitter is one component of a much broader information strategy that, as Brett alluded to, appears to be considerably more aggressive than we might have anticipated in a coronavirus context. I mean, China has typically been more risk averse um, in its approach to information manipulation, pretty sensitive to disclosure and more focused on denying the information space to critics, censoring out narratives that are critical of China, rather than drowning out narratives that are critical of China um, by promoting false or outright disinformation uh, or conspiratorial content, which is what we've seen here in the last couple of weeks. What are are some examples of, of those messages that are being shared? I think the most notorious one came from one of their, I think their number two spokesman at the MFA, who tweeted an article from Global Research Canada, which is a known pro-Kremlin conspiracy theory site that we see all the time popping up on the sort of Russian side of our work. That narrative was essentially that COVID was created in a bioweapons lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland. This happens to be the exact lab that is connected to the classic case of Soviet disinformation, um, because going back to the 80s, the Soviets said that AIDS was created at Fort Detrick. So we've seen this recycling of this classic Soviet narrative now drifting into China space. So this diplomat, Zhao Lijian, pushed out this tweet, I guess, in mid-March. That tweet was retweeted by at least 12 other ambassadors or embassy accounts and then was picked up by their state-backed media outlets. So we saw CGTN and China Daily running articles about this conspiracy theory. So the type of stuff, as Jess mentioned, that they usually 
stayed away from because they're pretty risk averse. They were leaning into and pushing out this particular conspiracy theory, but there are others as well. For example, that U.S. military might have brought the virus to Wuhan during the military games with some of their Italian messaging. They were pushing out a narrative that it perhaps originated in Italy, kind of citing this, this fringy research. So we've seen multiple different narratives, but I think that the key one was that it was created actually at a bioweapons lab in the U.S., Although, uh, as I understand it, uh, some of the the conspiracy theories are, however, being picked up by outlets in in the U.S. and then spread that way. Is that right? Well, some of them also originated uh, with outlets in the U.S. So they're sort of piggybacking off of fringe conspiracy theories that were already out there. I mean, this is consistent with what we see on the Russia side as well. Oftentimes, they're not sitting in a room sort of spitballing the type of narrative to put out there. They're just pretty good at circling the internet and finding things that already have taken root in certain communities. So their role is to amplify things that may not have gotten much oxygen otherwise. One thing that I found interesting is the way that we saw China's diplomats and state media use U.S. officials' use of the term China virus or Wuhan virus in the period in which that was um, happening on a regular basis as a hook to promote their conspiracy theories. So they would in the process of pushing back on on those efforts, which, you know, they characterized as sort of as the blame game. And they would infuse that pushback with either alternative theories about the origins of the virus or just sort of casting doubt more generally on the notion that there even is sort of established truth around where the virus originated. And that, too, feels like a very Russian tactic, right? Just sowing seeds of doubt around the, the question of, like, is there an objective truth? Right. And that's what's so damaging to democracy, right? I mean, we need that shared sense of of truth and facts to have to, to form the basis of, of democratic governance. So I think that's that's probably the, I had to guess, the reason that that's so important to, to your organization and, and others that are really out there doing the work of, of advancing democracy throughout the world is just kind of calling attention to this activity and the, the potential that it has to be disruptive to democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's something we've seen on the Russia side for years. It's There's no singular effort to prove a specific narrative. It is just to throw enough different narratives out there uh, that the water gets muddy and that people stop believing that there is this objective truth, which, of course, if you're in an authoritarian country is great because when people feel like they no longer have a grasp of the truth, they probably are not going to be uh, as involved in politics. They're not going to be out on the street protesting. They're just going to say, I don't know what's true. I'm not going to be involved. I'm going to sort of disengage from the political process. So if you're an authoritarian, that's obviously great. If you're trying to live in a democracy and promote public participation, really, really detrimental if we can't come to an agreed upon set of facts bear in mind that this is a moment of opportunity in a way for our authoritarian competitors because, you know, we're talking about an issue that is frightening, has become politically polarized, is related to trust in government, trust in truth, and trust in institutions. And so it's kind of the perfect storm. Um, And whether or not Russia or China are driving this, it's the kind of opportunity that Russia and now China, I think we should expect, would seize on in order to promote their broader long-term goals. Yeah, which are... I mean, I think for both Russia and China, this is about regime security and regime stability. 
Russia is a declining power by many measures that uses a suite of asymmetric tools. Information operations are but one of them in order to raise its profile on the international stage and to compete with us. Where China is a you know rising power by many measures with a lot to lose, which is why I think it's been historically more risk averse in its information operations. So they have different sort of risk profiles and long-term goals where Russia's sort of playing a disorder strategy. Uh, it just wants to foment chaos. And China is sort of playing a reorder strategy. It's more interested in remaking a global order that's conducive to its interests. But you know, both of them have sort of taken aim at Western institutions, Western norms, democratic principles. And that's because for both of them, you know, they have a shared interest in diminishing democracy's appeal, dimming our light, and making their way of doing business seem, in, in China's case in particular, seem appealing. And in, in Russia's case, it's sort of about being able to say, like, does democracy look so good? Do you really want that? And so, you know, I think both countries are have a broader long-term strategy that's ultimately about whether Putin and Xi's survival in a leadership role, um, but have these consequences for us and for our allies in Europe and other democracies around the world. Right. Yeah. And, and to that point about uh, you know, China's way of, of doing business is better or that the type of framing, um, I'm, I'm reminded of, of a conversation that we had on this show with with Larry Diamond uh, back in the fall. And he, he talked about that. I know he does in his uh, most recent book as well about China's interest in pushing this this model of, of authoritarian capitalism, you know, emphasis on the capitalism, not so much on, on the, the authoritarian side of things. And I'm wondering with the increased focus in in the U.S. and I suspect elsewhere as well about getting the economy back on track and, you know, all of those those types of messaging. It seems like that's where things are, are trending now moving forward. Is there reason to suspect or, or maybe uh, any evidence you've seen that, that China is is going to try to capitalize on that piece of, of the narrative at all in terms of promoting its its economic message? I mean, absolutely. Um, And it's not just its economic message. I think China is without a doubt seizing this moment in order to cast uh, a very stark contrast between, you know, what it what it frames as its um, quite successful approach to dealing with the crisis at home that positioned it to be able to be this sort of responsible global player, as opposed to the chaotic, feckless, belated response of the West. I um, would have to look at the latest numbers, but there is a lot of content out there that is critical of of, of Chinese promoted content that is critical of the U- United States response to the crisis and the West more broadly. It's focused on making um, transatlantic unity appear to be, you know, a sham, not something you can rely on. Where is the EU, again, positioning itself as this provider um, that is present for Europe in a way that the United States is not? And it really is about this, like, presenting this sharp contrast in governance models. And one of the things I think is interesting just more broadly is that if, you know, when we think about Russia and China's approach to information manipulation, if Russia can kind of dent democracy's appeal, China can kind of come in behind and present this alternative model. And they're in that way, I think having sort of a mutually reinforcing dynamic, even if they're not, you know, fully coordinated in any explicit way. We've been talking a lot about the the data you your organization is looking at from Twitter primarily, though maybe other sources as well. Uh, can you talk about how you're tracking that and your your Hamilton project? Sure. So Hamilton 2.0 tracks 
nation state messaging across Twitter, uh, their YouTube channels, and their English language websites, although we're going to expand to pull in other languages as well, and their official statements at the UN. So right now we have a side of the dashboard for Russia, we have a side of the dashboard for China, and within the next two or three weeks, we're going to be adding Iran as well. So what this gives us the ability to do is see how they're using different information mediums for different types of messaging, but also tracking narratives uh, over time, but also, you know, what are they saying at the diplomatic level at the UN versus what are they doing on Twitter through their embassy accounts? So it's kind of the full spectrum approach to understanding state-back messaging and a way to compare and contrast between, well, right now, the two countries soon to be the three countries where one of the interesting things we've seen is there is a little bit of circular amplification that happens. So we see, for example, uh, Iranian diplomats retweeting RT. Uh, we see Chinese diplomats retweeting press TV. But we also see uh, them retweeting the same characters who exist in sort of the gray space, who aren't necessarily backed by any states, but who present a message that is beneficial to those states, usually just being an anti-U.S. kind of message, particularly around foreign policy. So we see the same outlets that aren't necessarily state-backed, but we've seen Russia amplify for years, being amplified by the Chinese and Iranians as well. And that's one of the interesting things that the dashboard captures, because we can see every retweet, we can see every link. It gives us the ability to look across different nation states and across different information mediums to better understand how authoritarian countries message primarily to, to Western audiences. How do you know when you have enough information to be able to, to draw conclusions or start to issue policy briefs or you know, whatever kind of the outcome is, whatever, whatever reporting comes out of this dashboard? How do you, you know, balance that sense of certainty versus being able to, to respond to how quickly things are changing? It's a, it's a great question. The threshold question has always been really challenging for us. It was particularly challenging with our first iteration of the dashboard that looked at more of the covert space where we didn't have a 100% certainty with attribution. At least now we know everything that shows up on the dashboard. We're 100% certain it's point of origin. The challenge, though, is when to talk about something or when it's better to let it die. Because, of course, if you report on it, that gives that narrative or that story a bit of oxygen. And I don't think anyone has figured out sort of a scientific method behind how you decide when to respond versus just letting something kind of exist in the darker recesses of the internet and not touch it. So we can look at engagement numbers. We can look at the sort of volume of tweets behind something or the, the engagement on Facebook with an article. But at the end of the day, it, it comes down to a bit of a, a gut check kind of decision. So what should people do if they encounter this information on Twitter or other outlets? Is it useful to try to refute it on the platform itself? Or are there other tactics that, that might be more effective in terms of, of calling out misinformation for what it is or trying to help stop it from spreading? So, I mean, broadly, I think much more research is needed on the sort of cognitive science aspects of this problem. There's some research and it's quite good, but there are so many unexplored questions. Some of this research suggests that like rebutting a theory only sort of increases the adherence to that idea. And so that's not the right approach. But we have to understand under what circumstances are what actions or interventions most useful. And I think that's just 
another place where we're really waiting for retrospect. In the meanwhile, I would say, you know, relying on individuals to be the sort of fail-safe stopgap measure here to solve this problem is, you know, I think we all bear personal responsibility for the way we behave and how we interact with information online, but it's the companies um, and it's lawmakers that create the broader environment in which companies operate that I think have responsibilities also for the health of our information ecosystem. I think it's been interesting to see the companies, the platforms in particular, leaning in a little bit on policing health misinformation and and you know uh, misinformation related to COVID. Uh, and I think it just reveals what the companies can do with a little bit of political will. I would just add, if I could, at, at the individual level, I do think there's some things that people can do that don't go towards directly rebutting false information. One is just don't share information unless you can verify it. I mean, it's the most basic thing in the world. But I, I think everyone has an anecdotal story about their aunt or cousin or whomever who spreads these wild conspiracies on Facebook or over email. And as soon as you as the individual take a story, kind of reprocess it, republish it, you then become the point of origin of that information for your social circle. So if it originally came from Sputnik or CGTN, you have taken that information in and then pushed it out to your friend group. They obviously don't see the direct connection back to a party state media outlet that has ulterior motives. They see you as a source of information. And, and you know, the other thing I would add, too, there's a concept called pre-bunking. So it's essentially not trying to put out all of the fires of false information, but filling the information space first with correct, credible information. Now, that doesn't work uh, kind of across the board, but if you look around something like election security, if you want people to know where to go to vote and you have a problem of bad actors pushing out disinformation about polling place closures or all the kind of things we've seen to suppress the vote in the past, if you're an activist in the local community, fill your space with correct information aggressively so that there is no demand for the false information. That's what we've been talking about. This information changes day to day. Uh, but what are some of the kind of longer term trends you're looking at? Or, or, or what are you uh, keeping an eye out on as you, you continue to, to evaluate the information coming out of Hamilton 2.0? COVID, I think, is creating very fertile ground for disinformation writ large, because one of the things we have always said, when we look at the at-risk groups for who tends to be the most susceptible to disinformation, it tends to be socially isolated people, it tends to be those who are politically polarized, and it tends to be people whose perception of reality can be shaped by their social media feed. So prior to COVID, that was a very small percentage of Americans. Now it's about 90% of us. So we're all in a space right now where reality has been kind of flipped on its head. So I think that is creating writ large an environment for disinformation to spread and really to take hold. So I think it's important to go back that, you know, we do have this election coming up. The three countries that I mentioned that are part of the dashboard, Iran, China and Russia, have very different interests in the outcome of that election. So we're going to be paying close attention to what those three nation states are doing to try to maybe manipulate American voters. 
This has been great. Uh, thank you both for all of the work that you're doing on Hamilton 2.0 and, and, and your other efforts. And thank you for making time tonight to talk with us about it. No, thanks for having us. Thank you. The transatlantic relationship was already complicated. Now the coronavirus pandemic is adding a whole new dimension to nearly every aspect of it, from trade and foreign policy to defense and technology. Out of Order is a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Each episode, we tap into GMF's transatlantic network to tackle the biggest topics animating the U.S. and Europe today. Tune into the newest edition of the Out of Order stream, Post-Pandemic Order, featuring a weekly interview with a leading U.S. or European expert on how the geopolitics of our post-COVID world might look. Out of Order is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know we've said this before, but the Alliance for Security and Democracy is just doing such incredibly important and reliable and responsible work. And in this time, it's just we're really lucky as a nation to have them. And we are lucky as a podcast to be their friends. Um, yeah, so yeah. Get, it's great information from them. One of the things that Brett mentioned was uh, Fort Detrick. And this is, um, and I think he actually mentioned that this is a longstanding kind of trope of the Soviets, right? Fort Detrick in Maryland was the headquarters of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program. And that program was stopped in 1969. And so the Soviets said that this is where AIDS came from. It was manufactured as a biological weapon. And now you have folks from Russia, China, and Iran arguing or at least suggesting that Fort Dietrich is the source of the coronavirus. And of course, and we can't say definitively that it's not, can we? We can't say definitively that it's not producing biological weapons, even exactly. though we have no reason to think that it is. There is no way to prove that they are wrong. Right. What you have to do is just say, no, that program was closed in 1969. There's no way that's what happened. And then you get, do you know it's closed? Do you, do you, have you been there? Do you have any evidence to show that they're not doing it? And of course, were, were you on the done. moon when they landed there, Chris? Right, exactly. And so what this does is this false claim rests on a little truth and it makes it all the more difficult to fight because there's no way to prove the negative against what they're arguing. And very so, true. Although, you know, remember, we had a, a, an interesting show months ago on, uh, I thought it was quite interesting. I thought our guests were quite interesting about conspiracy theories. And uh, one thing they noted about contemporary conspiracy theories is, is sometimes it doesn't even have to be the grain of truth in it. Right. I think that's what both the new Russian model and what we're seeing more and more out of China is this idea or the objective is not to build off a truth and create a plausible lie, but just to throw so many competing claims out there that there's just no way for an average person to assess where the truth genuinely lies, right? Right. And let's be sure to note how much worse these things become when they spread around social media and are perhaps retweeted or sent around by people who have followings. Anyway. Oh, they're doing it entirely for their external audience. It's exactly. It is a way, they are using Western openness against the West. And, yes. and that's the only purpose here.
right? Yes. I mean, there's nothing about this that is not pernicious. (laughs) I think it's really interesting and it's important is, um, I think it was Jessica who said that it's not obvious how you respond to this, right? Because our brains are wired such that even if you say what you're hearing is a lie, you're still hearing it. And it is difficult for your brain to say, oh, all right, therefore, I should just not even take that seriously. I shouldn't even engage that. I should put that out of my head. You can't. And so it's not obvious what the best way is to respond to a lie. You know, you can you can give it oxygen just by saying that's a lie. And I think that is something that is a matter of experimentation, but it's also it is striking that that's where we are, is we're trying to figure out what is the most effective way, given the way our brains work, to respond to this. Because it's not obvious. You know, just saying it's a lie doesn't work. I can do yeah, that. And, and because the alliance has the capacity to identify how this is done, but they don't have the power to counter the lies. Right, right. What they do is they're, they're showing us the playbook for these other countries, and identify what it is that they're doing. And they're able to speak to the effect that it has on American democracy. But they don't have the voice. And this was my point a bit earlier, to really counter the lies, to really counter the conspiracies. That requires strong domestic voices, strong partisan domestic voices. Absolutely. And it also requires a, a certain amount of rigor and discipline from all of us. I think this whole question of how a democratic society deals with propaganda and the obfuscation of the truth uh, just reinforces the idea that democracy works means democracy takes work and that all of us have to have some vigilance and some care with what we say and what we repeat out there in the world because it matters. It, It matters for democracy. Yeah, well, I think that's a good note to end on, Chris. You know, we've already spent a lot of time praising the uh, Alliance, but it's worth doing it one more time. It's really reliable information. And thanks to Jessica and Brad for coming on. Really interesting. They're very smart people. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. Yeah, I'm Michael Berkman. Check out their Hamilton dashboard and uh, stay safe out there. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.